0: Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Clay Nelly at TSAOG Orthopedics in San Antonio. Tonight, I have the privilege of being joined by Dr. Matthew Smith. Dr. Smith is an associate professor of orthopedic surgery at the University of Missouri and was a senior author on a paper entitled Superior Capsular Reconstruction Using Dermal Allograft as a Safe and Effective Treatment for Massive Irreparable Rotator Cuff Tears, Two-Year Clinical Outcomes, which was published in the February 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Matt, thank you for joining me today.
1: Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me, Clay. This is uh, great. Happy to be here. Appreciate it.
0: Let's start with basically kind of maybe just the basic background of the article and the impetus for the study and, and your guys' background with it and then a brief summary of the overall findings.
1: Yeah. So, you know, it's a multi-center study and, and actually Alan Hirahara kind of approached us and said he, he had been uh, doing SCRs for a short time at that time. You know, we we started enrolling patients in 2015 for this. And um, it was uh, a multi-center study. It was actually going to have a third center, which unfortunately had to drop out as we started enrolling patients. But it was really at the early times of SCR. And in fact, Alan had spent some time with Mahata and really started thinking about ways to improve. And rather doing rather than doing the fasciolata, um, he he thought about these thick acellular dermal matrix grafts and had done some work, had done uh, several on his own, and really wanted to enroll more patients and see if he could get the results out there faster. So he published one of the technique articles in 2015 and we initially based it on that. um, And said, look, let's start enrolling patients and uh, we're gonna really be uh, interested in imaging. So we really wanted to focus on the imaging afterwards. Uh, Alan's great with ultrasound and um, said, let's see if these vascularize and what happens long-term and, and how patients do. So so uh, initially it was 10 um, patients per site just to kind of see how this whole thing would work. By the time we um, excluded some patients intraoperatively, generally because of either irreparable subscaps, grade 4 changes uh, in the cartilage, it was just down to 14 patients, um, and ultimately, after a couple of years, they all, you know, really did well. I mean, they, it seems to be reliable for pain relief. Um, their uh, VAS pain scores decreased significantly. ASES scores went, you know, from the 50s to high 80s. Forward elevation improved significantly from the 120s to 170s. You know, same score improved. acromiohumeral distance improved. And and really overall, I think it followed the trend of of most of the studies that we're seeing with um, superior capsular reconstruction
0: Absolutely. I think it's really interesting. You touched on one thing that I thought was really interesting that you guys did a great job with in terms of doing the ultrasound and evaluating the the vascularity of the graft itself and that 93% or 13 of the 14 grafts had some sort of evidence uh, for vascularity at one year Uh, postoperatively. What factor do you think that plays in, in the overall function of the graft? And, you know, obviously in terms of long-term rotator cuff studies you know there's a very we know variable healing rates with the rotator cuff itself the native rotator cuff and now we're talking about uh, an allograft uh, here and so is is that do you think one of the primary factors in terms of healing and or the function of the graft obviously it's multifactorial but uh, you guys looked at that specifically so what role do you think that plays yeah
1: so i think you know, the the acellular dermis has been around for rotator cuff surgery for a long time. And certainly these new grafts are quite a bit thicker. And, and there's something about the dermis in and of itself that allows for, you know, tissue ingrowth and and uh, angiogenesis. And what what is interesting is that the size of the vasculature and, and, and sort of how it appears on ultrasound decreases slightly with time which I think is fascinating. It's like these initial robust blood vessels, you know, at six months come in, and they're really obvious and present on ultrasound. And as time goes on, they kind of get smaller and more diffuse. And there have been some studies. um, You have partners actually down there who have some studies on retrieval of what grafts look like. And and these acellular dermal grafts become a little more tendon-like Um, in in some areas become almost indistinguishable from native tissue. So I think it's important, you know, in our study and and a couple of other studies have shown that with time, the acromiohumeral distance kind of decreased, which I think is interesting. I mean, in in terms of the graft and what it's doing and how it's healing, um, I don't have an explanation for that. I mean, ours went from, you know, initially 6 millimeters to 8 millimeters at 6 months. Seven and a half millimeters at a year and and then at two years was only six point seven millimeters, slightly better than it was, you know preoperatively. and and you think, well, if you know the graft is healing and and vascular, um, you know why why would that change? I mean, what about that would change? So you know I don't have a great explanation for it, other than the acellular dermis. I mean, just the nature of the dermal tissue and and all of its structures and pores, I think lends itself to to healing
0: and becoming more, uh, more like the, uh, the host. Yeah, absolutely. I think those are great points to kind of help try and better our understanding of, of how it heals and functions a little bit into the indications. I think anytime we get, um, a relatively newer procedure or a procedure that's starting to maybe become more mainstream, sometimes the, the indications tend to get expanded or the indications get to be applied to a, uh, maybe a wider variety of of things than was initially started. So you guys did a great job kind of outlining that, um, you know, it's for massive irreparable cuff tears, but uh, not with bipolar cartilage loss or grade four or five Hamada classifications. or you mentioned a couple of patients uh, fell out of the, um, the study because of um, irreparable subscap tears. So, in in what do you think are uh, those are obviously the primary indications um are there is there anything else that you think you know sometimes some people have have indicated that maybe it's best for a patient that's less than 65 years old or best for a patient that's more active or um, in the editorial commentary that accompanies um, your guys article in the journal those authors even recommend as low as Hamada grades one and two and maybe not even a grade three. So uh, in your practice, you know, what are those, what are the things, do you have kind of cutoffs or do you have primary indications in addition to those factors that would lead you towards an SCR? Yeah.
1: And so, you know, primarily uh, doing shoulder, I feel like I have a, a pretty decent, you know, basket of tricks or uh, tool bag and uh, comfortable doing reverses and uh, tendon transfers and things like that, and and so when you when you narrow it down, um, or I I try to narrow it down, I guess you look at all of the, there's lots of studies on SCR, and and a lot of them are are pretty small, like ours, uh, 20 patients ish, and and they have fairly similar results in the in I think the right patients, and so so to your point, what's the right patient? I mean for me, I think they have to have decent function I know there are reports of them you know reversing pseudoparalysis and things like that but when I I look at patients who are going to benefit from one operation as opposed to another if I have a patient who truly can't raise his arm and has some arthritic changes then then for me that's clearly a reverse but if you have somebody who's in like the 120 degree forward elevation range you know they're above 90 they are active Their x-rays are basically normal, except for maybe some superior migration, so no significant arthritis. Expectations, I think expectations play a huge role. What do they want to do, so their activity level? Um, And then what are their symptoms? So if you have a patient who has relatively preserved motion, but overhead movement causes pain, or they get a lot of mechanical symptoms and kind of a chromiohumeral rubbing and clicking that bothers them, in, in patients who don't have a, a massive loss of external rotation who, who would potentially benefit from something like a tendon transfer if they can't maintain their arm at their side uh, in, in an externally rotated position if they have a significant lag sign I think those those set them up for requiring a more significant operation I think in general it's it's good for pain relief it's good for patients who have of have preserved, um, activity, you know, patients who have relatively preserved motion, we know if, if they go through a reverse, they, they tend to be less satisfied. Some of them lose motion and it, and it just doesn't feel normal. And so, you know, so I think if somebody has good overhead function and
0: not a lot of arthritis, um, uh, this, this offers a really good option. Yeah, I think those are really great, great points of, of a really ideal subset or population for this. Uh, just a few kind of uh, technical points or, uh, to get your thoughts on. So one of the things you guys um, mentioned in the paper was that all the SCRs were performed in neutral abduction um, at the time of implantation. And some people, you know, have talked a lot about kind of optimal SCR graft tensioning and the optimal position the arm should be in when it happens or the optimal tension the SCR should should be under. And you know, if it, if it's if it's not stressed enough, it won't function very well. And if it's too tight, then you have increased risk of tearing. So, what do you think are kind of your tips for for kind of tensioning it appropriately and how you position either the patient or the graft itself? Yeah,
1: and those are great points. And I do see a lot. And you know, it was funny when we were first enrolling patients in in into this, and uh, everything was so new. You'd see people up on the podium after you know they they get a paper accepted and they've done like eight of them and they're like you have to put the patient in 30 degrees of abduction and it's like well wait a minute we don't you know we don't really know that i mean in the grand scheme of things it's relatively new in the grand scheme of things it, there's a lot of papers again that have relatively small numbers like ours and 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 they have very similar results so i think it's more about patient selection I have seen the studies about pre-tensioning the graft, which I think makes sense biomechanically, but but how much it changes or or how much it applies to what we do clinically, I'm not sure if I I know. So we went with neutral abduction, just because as you watch this through a simulator, and and, and we went into the lab and have done some uh, things since in the uh, in our Thompson lab up here at Mizzou in just watching what happens when you put a shoulder in a simulator. And you can really significantly increase the tension when you go from 30 degrees of abduction, when it's implanted and tension, and then bring the arm to the side. And we had, in the failures we had, one of them was from the medial side. And, And since that time in reviewing MRIs and having performed more of these, they tend to fail more on the medial side now thankfully patients who have a medial sided failure tend to do well there's still some interposition but I do think it, it's a, a significant stress in going from an abducted position um, to bring the arm to the side on the medial row in, in in particular so you know in terms of how much it functions it it, it really is a uh, it's a it's more of a static graft rather than something that has dynamic or pull or or function like a muscle tendon unit. So, so I think the biomechanics of it are important. I just don't think we know enough yet to say you absolutely have to put it in this with the arm in the, this position or under this much tension or and you know, that will that will probably evolve. I think as um, more and more get done and indications probably get narrowed to more. Follow up is longer.
0: Those are, yeah, I think those are all terrific points. What do you think about um, over the top cuff repair or partial cuff repair in conjunction with the SCR? You know, some some of those some people doing some of those studies and some of those comparisons are kind of come out, and the the results seem to be a little bit of a mixed bag, or a little bit variable. And, and, and even in some cases, the, the, the outcome stores and the patient reported outcomes are even a little bit worse um, in, in the cases where there's been a partial cuff repair or kind of an over-the-top repair in conjunction with an SCR. Have you done many of those or what do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I, you know, I haven't done a lot of that. And, and sometimes to me it just comes down with a cost benefit. I mean, truly just in terms of cost resources, when you're performing one of these surgeries and then, you know, overall, how much better can you make certain things? So so if you look at just, you know, doing a repair and then adding something to protect the repair or doing a good partial repair, you know, how much do you need to add? We, ha- we have excellent um, long-term outcomes of partial rotator cuff repairs in terms of what happens to the shoulder and how well patients do. So, so for me, I, I, I tend to be a pretty simple guy, and I think of, well... Um, if I can do a, a good partial repair, their subscap is normal and I bring the intraspinatus up and, and, you know, they don't have a lot of arthritis depending on what they're looking for. Can I add a lot by, by placing a relatively expensive graft? Can, can I change their outcomes a lot by adding one of these grafts and more anchors? And the other way around, you know, if I, if the their native tissue is under a bunch of tension and I do some slides or something, I can get it to move a little bit. Does it add much to try and sew it to the graft or sew the graft in different locations or am I just complicating things? You know, am I, am I putting tension on the graft in a way that there doesn't need to be or in a way that has not been studied? So I, I, I feel like you can definitely try to do too much, Um, and, and I think it's just kind of, again, trying to maintain kind of a specific goal. What does the patient want? Uh, what do they have when I enter the operating room and how am I going to make them better?
0: Yeah, I think those are all terrific points. I think. Uh, one of the things, or a couple of things that Steve Burkhart has taught me is there's there's probably more rotator cuffs that are repairable than maybe some people think. If you if you do kind of some of the techniques like you did, you mentioned with some slides and mobilization and things like that, but if you do those things and it's still under a ton of tension and it's and you can't and you can't repair it, then you know what are you adding by you know really repairing that or repairing that still under a lot of tension with the graft? And so I think that uh, those are definitely really important points and, and nice technical kind of notes with it. Matt, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Clay. Be well. Dr. Smith's article, Superior Capsular Reconstruction Using Dermal Allograft as a Safe and Effective Treatment for Massive Irreparable Rotator Cuff Tears, Two-Year Clinical Outcomes, can be found in the February 2021 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org that concludes this edition of the arthroscopy journal podcast as as always if you enjoy the podcast please remember to give us a five-star review on your listening device thank you the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the arthroscopy association of north america or the arthroscopy journal